I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. From wild child to Olympic medalist, Jonathan Horton is the kind of athlete that truly inspires. Although his career was filled with struggles, his determination and grit have shown the world that any obstacle can be overcome. Jonathan is a two-time Olympian, Olympic bronze and silver medalist, a world medalist, and an Olympic team captain. He's also a six-time NCAA champion, a seven-time U.S. national champion, an eight-time America Ninja Warrior competitor, and just a really awesome dude. Many of his collegiate records still stand today, and Jonathan has authored two books sharing both the lessons that he has learned through his sport and his incredible journey from failure to Olympic dream come true. Jonathan is a remarkable storyteller, so get ready because this episode will not disappoint. Pursuit peeps, we will be taking a little hiatus from the podcast during the holidays. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year a little bit early. But I want to encourage you, if you're not already on the email list, to go get signed up so you won't miss out on any of the fun. I send out weekly emails talking about the podcast, just general encouragement or exciting things that we're doing. And we do have workshops and a course launching soon. So it's a really good time to get on the list. Plus, you get to choose a free guide as my gift to you. laurawilkinson.com slash learn and just pick which freebie you want. That's laurawilkinson.com slash learn. Pick a freebie, you'll be on the list and you won't miss a thing. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Jonathan Horton, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Yes, this is awesome. Laura, we haven't got to chat for a while. This is fun. I know. Well, we got to do an event like about, what, a month and a half ago. It was fun to like connect in person again because it's been a while. It has. You know, I think you and I, before the podcast, we were talking, we we did a few podcasts, you know, back in the day, <laughs> pre-pandemic times. Pre-pandemic. We, we've gotten to connect a few times recently and uh, it's fun. I always enjoy talking to you. It's always fun. And I, gosh, you are such a good storyteller. And I want to start off with some of your stories that I love the most Uh because I just, well, I love to get people's backgrounds on like how they got started in their sport. And you were like a total wild child growing up, (laughs) but that got you into gymnastics. So it was a good thing. But I want you to tell us some of those stories about why your parents thought it would be a great idea to get you into gymnastics. (laughs) All right. All right. So this is, this is my number one story. So this is my high point. It goes, it it gets worse from here. I was a wild child growing up. And uh, I, I love to tell people about my interesting experience in a Target at the age of four. So I wasn't like a medicated kid, but I probably should have been. <laughs> I was so hyperactive and uh, like no joke. I always tell people, and this isn't like I'm, I'm being dead serious here. I used to have a little backpack. It was a monkey backpack with a leash attached to it. <laughs> and what's really funny is I remember as a, as a kid having this backpack and I was curious if you could still buy one. I went on Amazon the other day and you could still buy one, the monkey backpack with the leash. So see, there's still little Jonathans out there that need this. There (laughs) are. And you know what? When I tell the story from stage, I think I need to have this on. It would be hilarious (laughs) to be wearing. A visual. Perfect. (laughs) But anyways, so I had this little monkey backpack with a leash. My mom took me to a Target one day. Again, I'm four years old. But this one day, she always put this backpack on me. She actually forgot it. And she takes me into the store unleashed. And um, didn't take long that I took off and did my own thing and she lost me in the middle of the store. Well, long story short, like five minutes goes by. She's panicking. Anybody that knows my mom, she's a four foot little seven ball of energy. And sorry, (laughs) we're on a podcast here. I'm at home. My dogs are barking in the background. If you can hear them, it's just real life, real life here. So Mm -hmm. anyways, my mom is like running around this store and screaming and yelling and looking for me and everybody else starts searching for me. Anyways, she says it felt like it was an hour, but it was probably more like five to 10 minutes. But the manager came up to her and said, ma'am, calm down. I found your son. He pointed to the ceiling and he said, he's up there. And there was a uh, (laughs) 25 foot support beam in the middle of the store. Oh my God. That I had wrapped my arms and legs around like a bear. And I shimmied myself like all the way to the top. Anyways, I don't remember doing this. Um, (laughs) My mom said it was the craziest thing she'd ever seen because as soon as they started like saying something to me, I just like slid down. I was like, what? 
she went home that night and told my dad about the incident. And my dad basically was like, wow, our son <laughs> is a freak. He's so proud, right? <laughs> and he was like, you know what? Like, we should probably put him in a sport like gymnastics. So they actually enrolled me the very next day into a little recreational gymnastics facility. And the rest is history. Oh, my gosh. Well, wasn't there another incident with a garage door? Yeah, that was another one. So, um <laughs> That one's not, it's not quite as, as cool, but I guess it's kind of cool. So my mom, again, like my dad was such a hardworking dude. He was always at work. And so it was, my mom was stay at home. And so it was always my sister and myself. So one day we, I don't know where we were going, but we went outside and she hit the garage door button. I think I was like two or three for this one. She hits the button, the garage door starts going up. And then she realized she left something inside. She runs inside. And I think what happened was somebody called the house. And so she ended up picking up the phone, said she was on the phone for like three to five minutes. And when she came out, I was hanging from the garage door at the top. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, what is happening here? My two, three-year-old son is hanging from the garage door and it's been several minutes. Oh my goodness. I can't, as a mom, I cannot imagine like these antics that you're pulling thinking, what? No big deal. Like I'm just hanging, you know, up here for like five minutes, you know, as a two-year-old. I mean that. Yeah. Like this is, it's what I did. Like I couldn't help myself. Like (laughs) the other thing, like, I don't even know how I did this one, but when I was three, my mom stuck a quarter into one of those little like horses that goes back and forth in front of the grocery stores. They don't have them anymore. Maybe it's because of this incident, but they have them at like the mall, I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, she stuck a quarter in there and then she turned around thinking, I'm just going to be on this little horse rocking back and forth. I somehow fall off, bust my head open and needed six stitches in my forehead. So, (laughs) (laughs) so wait, you can shimmy to the top of a 25 foot pole in target and come back down. No problem. But you fall off the little horsey that goes back and forth. I've been falling off of the horse (laughs) my entire life. Okay. It's just what we did. It's what I did as a kid. It's what I did as an elite gymnast. Yeah. I see what you did there. Nice. Yeah. You like that? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But my parents have always given me a hard time even at like my ripe old age of 37 now, but no joke. I can't go up or down stairs without tripping and falling. (laughs) I've been like that my whole life. And my parents are like, we don't understand how you're such a klutz. Like how did you go to the Olympics and win medals in gymnastics, but you can't walk straight or go up the stairs without falling. I'm like, I really don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I can relate to that a little bit. I'm in the pool. I'm fine. If I'm walking around on the deck, it's like, you don't know what's going to happen. Like Laura's going to eat it on the pool deck. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you're meant to be in the water. You're you're not a land animal. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so you started really young because you're crazy, which is great. We love that on this podcast. But I'm assuming the Olympics weren't on your mind in the beginning. Like at what point did you kind of realize that you could accomplish great things in gymnastics? You know, it's always an interesting question because I get that one a lot. And I don't totally know when it hit me that, oh, you know what, you can become an Olympian. I just know I wanted to become an Olympian at a young age. And the one story that I always tell is when I was nine, I remember watching my first Olympics and uh, it was the 1996 games in Atlanta. And uh, I can remember it so clearly sitting on my couch watching, you know, everybody would think that I was inspired by like the men's gymnastics team, but that's not really true. I was inspired by the women's team. Really? They were the mag seven. They won the gold medal in 96. And well, yeah, it was pretty epic. I'll never forget sitting there watching Carrie Shrug, you know, 17 years old with the weight of the world on her shoulders. She falls on her first vault as the last athlete up on the last event with the gold medal on the line. They had two attempts back then at the same vault. They don't have that anymore, but she gets up and, you know, she's got She's limping back to the start of the runway and everybody's wondering what happened. Well, yeah. So here's Carrie and she's limping back to the, you know, beginning of the 82 foot runway to get set for her other vault. But she's, she's, you know, we didn't know then, like we know now, but she's, she's pretty hurt. You know, I think she broke a couple bones in her ankle and she had a partially torn ligament from her impact on the first vault. Yeah. Oh, geez. But we didn't learn that until later on. But I mean, (laughs) I just remember watching that 20,000, person packed arena and just the the electricity in the atmosphere and the feel of the olympics which i didn't fully understand at nine years old but then carrie you know raises her hands to alert the judges she's ready to go and she books it down that you know runway one more time and does two flips and one and a half twists in the air and lands on one foot like a 
stinking hero. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just like, it was a moment in time that was etched in my brain. And I'll never forget watching her team go up to that, a metal podium and, you know, Bella Caroli, who yes, is maybe not the, the best name in the world anymore after all of the, the scandals and everything, yeah. but still, you know, he was a big part of that team and carried her up to the metal podium. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was inspirational for me and millions, if not billions of people to see those gold medals go over those, those women's necks and watch the American flag go up in the air and listen to the national anthem. And I just remember thinking like, that's it. Like, I, that's why I'm doing gymnastics. That's what I want to do one day. And um, I didn't know if it would ever happen. I just knew that I was willing to do what it took to to give it a shot. And uh, it really kind of changed this ADHD hyperactive kid from someone who didn't know why he was doing gymnastics and didn't pay attention to his coaches into, I mean, for lack of a better term, a machine. Like I, I my mindset was just completely shifted as a nine-year-old to, okay, like I want to be an Olympian. And, you know, one of the things that I always talk about with people is those moments of intense motivation. They don't last forever. <laughs> right? <laughs> like everybody, you get fired up and you're motivated. It's like, the, it's like Monday. You're like, oh, it's Monday. This is going to be the best week ever. <laughs> and then by Wednesday, you're like, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. But you have to really capitalize on those extreme moments of motivation. Mm-hmm. And you have to like, kick it off. Right. And you have to like remind yourself of that moment because it can really kind of fuel you. And then you have to start chasing for that next moment of motivation. Cause I remember when I was, you know, not long after that, you know, starting to lose my focus again. And I had to continue to remind myself of, of that Olympic moment. I had to always go back to it. And, uh, you know, being motivated is not easy and it's a temporary thing. And it's something that I think too many people rely on that motivation because it goes away quickly. Right. Well, I think you're hitting on some good points because you, you you need to know why you're doing it. So like it's, it's good to get all fired up. But like you said, that only lasts like so long. But when you have to remember why you're doing it, what you want out of this, like that's what keeps you going when the Wednesday comes and the suck factor, you know, like feels deep. Yes. But um, yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's awesome. I think that drive because because also it just it's kind of showing that we can't create the passion or the fire in someone else. Something will click inside of an athlete or a person when, you know, like watching the Olympics or something is going to stick inside them and and create this passion and this drive that another person can't put. Because like parents are always like, how do I fire up my kid? How do I motivate my kid? And it's like, you can't do that. Like that has to come from inside of them, you know? And so I love that you tell that story of how that first started in you, you know, because mine was very similar too. And yeah, the Olympics, like just seeing the torch too, like there was just always something that I would connect back. So anytime I would see the torch, it's like, that's in me. Like, that's my fire. That's my, you know, and I just seeing that there's such a visual to it, you know, you can connect with. I love it. Yeah. You know, you, you real quick, you touched on something that I, I am also, I like to share with people because I, we've been doing these podcasts, you and me for a long time. And we get, we have the, the blessing of being able to talk to so many people and share our stories. But one of the things that I have had a, a conversation about a few times is people that you know, they hear us talk about passion and they hear us talk about our motivation and things that fire us up and what we want. And there's a lot of people out there that I've learned who can't find their passion and people that are like, oh man, you know, I want to do big things in my life, but I just don't know what it is. I can't find that passion. I haven't had that moment of inspiration like I had when I was nine years old watching the Olympics. And I've heard people say like, I'm probably just going to like continue on doing what I'm doing. It is what it is. It's kind of mediocre, but I just don't have that thing. And it's pretty common, actually. Not everybody finds it. But the one thing that I, I tell everybody is your life deserves a continued search for it. I think that you owe it to yourself to not quit on looking for that thing that fires you up and clicks in your brain and and etches itself into your soul that you want. Because yes, did we get really lucky at a young age to find that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, uh, so thankful for that. But, you know, if I'm 50 years old and I still haven't found what my passion is, I think I owe it to myself to look for it until the day I die. Right. You just owe that to yourself to not ever quit 
searching. And if you can't find it in one place in your life, start looking somewhere else, start getting creative. Look here, look there. Like, where can you go to discover what's that one thing that you love so much that you're not ever going to quit going after it? I love that. Well, and, and athletes, like we have a certain lifespan, you know, and, and you can continue doing things as masters or, you know, in, in different ways as you get older. But but there is a, a, an end point to most athletes lives at the level that they were at when they're younger. And so you have to find a new passion or a shift or something else that you care about to get all fired up about. I, I love that you say that because sometimes it's not going to be your job. Like sometimes your passion will not be the thing you're doing to bring home money, but it's the thing you're doing outside of that that brings you life and brings you joy and fulfillment. So yep. yeah, I totally, I love what you're saying. Just keep trying new things. Keep, you know, joining people when they ask you to do stuff, like keep trying new things until something just lights that fire inside. Cause it may not look like what you think it's going to, but it's going to feel special. I'm kind of a perfect example, right? So like I'm no longer competing in gymnastics, which was my thing for 28 years. And, you know, you and I talked about this before the podcast that I have a new career now. I'm selling insurance, which is not <laughs> not the sexiest job in the world, but I kind of fell into it through a family member. And it's so weird how much I love what I'm doing. It is so weird. Like I, I'm in a corporate insurance space where I get to meet with insurance brokers and HR departments and CEOs, and I get to treat people you know, like I take them, I take people golfing or I take them out to a nice dinner. And in the other half of my job, I'm crunching spreadsheet numbers and I'm on the phone and, and it's so strange how much I enjoy this new work I'm doing. <laughs> and I never would have in a million years. So I just kind of found it and I love it. I just kept looking for a new career since the pandemic hit. And I kind of went for a while without being able to do anything. And just by looking, I found something I think it's really important to just like keep your eyes and ears open for what life has for you. And you'll never, you never know what it could toss at you that you just become really passionate about, but you got to keep looking. Oh, I totally agree. Like I look at the random things I'm doing now, like podcasts and I'm coaching people and doing all this. And I like used to hate speaking in front of people. Like, I mean, I hated it. Like it was just the worst thing in the world for me. And now that's what I do for a living. And I love it. So you may not like something the first time you try it, but if you continue trying new things and continue trying new avenues, yes, you'll definitely find that thing. And apparently being an insurance salesman is the coolest gig that Jonathan Horton could have gotten. It's awesome. <laughs> hey, it's so weird, dude. It's so weird, but I really like it. It's hard. I mean, there are times where I'm like, why, why is this not going the way I want it to go? But that's like everything. But you like a challenge. Yes. I do. I do. I, you know, the challenges are great. Not in the moment. Like uh, so many people, like you say that, oh, you like a challenge. I don't think anyone actually likes a challenge. It's the completion of the challenge. Okay. I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right there. Cause I actually do like being in the middle of the suck sometimes. And I know I'm completely, I know I'm psychotic like this. I, oh, I hate it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, but like, I love being in the middle of the hard because I want to figure out how to get through it. Like, I love that. I think it sucks. I'm not saying it doesn't suck. It still sucks. But like, I like the hunt of trying to get out of it and get over it and, and moving past it. Like there's something about the process that I think is so addicting in a way. Maybe that's why I keep finding myself in really difficult situations. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me let you into to my brain just a little bit here and I'll, I'll take you to what it felt like to compete. <laughs> so, and a lot of people find this really, really funny. So whenever I was like at world championships or Olympic games, no joke, every single second of that competition, I was on the verge of leaving the arena. Seriously? Like, I'm out. Seriously. I don't want to do this. Oh <laughs> like, my goodness. I, I'm dead serious. So I trained all this time, all these hours, all these years. And I like I'm standing underneath the high bar about to do my routine at the Olympics. And I'm thinking to myself, all those people that are in this arena watching me right now, they're so lucky that they don't have to stand here <laughs> underneath this high bar. My heart's pounding a million miles an hour. I just want to go home. But the reason I loved to compete was because at the same time in my brain, I was thinking to myself, this is so scary. I'm panicking. I don't want to screw up, but man, it's going to feel so freaking good when I stick that dismount and the crowd goes crazy <laughs> and I win this thing. I was a very nervous competitor, mm -hmm. but I was able to kind of remap my brain and take my adrenaline and turn it into power and focus. And I was able to take my scaredness and turn it into anticipation. 
So like I was so nervous and so terrified, but I also was thinking ahead to, man, this is going to be amazing when this is done. And whenever I can look back and think like I got through it, but like (laughs) I was so terrified and I almost quit every competition that I ever went to. But I love that you just took control of your mindset and you're like, I'm changing this. Like, I know how to move past this. So you, you figured it out. I'm sure it didn't happen the first time, but you figured it out. And there's, you know, everybody says, oh, sports is, you know, 90% mental, but like nobody trains that way. But you took full advantage and figured it out. I think, I think that's awesome. You knew that there was something more important than the fear, like on the other side of it, that you could go through the fear because you wanted that thing on the other side of it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it's true. Sports is 90% mental until you get to the highest level. When you're at the highest level, it's 100%. It's 100%. <laughs> exactly. 100%. It, you take all the physical and all the training out of it. You've done that. You're at the highest level. You're at the Olympics or you're at whatever professional world championship. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. At that point, everyone there is the best of the best and it's who isn't going to make a mental error. It's 100% mental. And that in it of itself is kind of terrifying. And I think that applies to everything in life. When you get to the highest level of whatever it is you're doing, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, don't screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, I love it. This is such good conversation. I love it. I I do want to jump into your your college though, because you kind of had an epic college like we have an epic college record. Like your OU record for titles and honors still stands, doesn't it? Some of it does. Some of it doesn't. Because you want, what did you win? Like six NCAA titles and like 18 All-American titles? Yeah, I got a bunch. Um, <laughs> it, it, I had a really good college career. So I won um, three team titles with Oklahoma. The only year we didn't win was my junior year. Um, Penn State beat us. But then I have like six individual titles. Um, one of those being an all-around title. But there's a, a gymnast who's still currently competing named Yule Moldauer who um, he's a stud. I think he tied my individual titles, doesn't have as many team, but I think he's got a bunch of All-American honors as well. So I think I got him in a few places. I think he might've beat me in some places, but pretty good NCAA career. Oh yeah. Well, and and so men's gymnastics is a little different from women's gymnastics this way, at least in the past. It's kind of, I feel like changing and shifting a little bit, but like men seem to go to college and then get to the level of like Olympic games where women seem to kind of peak out sometimes before college, like at Olympic level and then go to college after like, so, so kind of explain some of that to me from your perspective. Yeah. I mean, so it's changed a little bit. So where in the past, and I, I, I try to say these things correctly, but like in the past, women's gymnastics was all about beauty, grace, kind of dance. And so they really wanted the women in the sport to be, again, I try to say this politely, but teeny tiny little ballerinas in a way. <laughs> and so things have changed now to where you know, you look at an athlete like Simone Biles, Mm -hmm. who is just, she's one of the greatest athletes of all time, not just in gymnastics. Like she is an absolute phenom. Yeah. Monster of an athlete. Yeah. But you look at her and she's compact. She's powerful. Her last Olympic, she was in her twenties. And we're seeing that more now where the women, they're able to mature more. And it's not all about being this teeny tiny little ballerina anymore. It's strength, it's power combined with beauty and artistry. And so you know, on the men's side of the sport, it's always kind of been like, who can get the strongest and most powerful? And that doesn't happen for us until we're, you know, we hit 20, 21, 22 years old when we peak, Right. you know, not to get into too much science and biology, but, you know, peak testosterone levels and things like that when muscles get as strong as they possibly can. And so the men's sports or men's gymnastics has always been more of one. It's like you get out of college and you're still kind of rising to your peak of strength. And so my, I would say my peak in gymnastics was 25, 26 years old. And then I fell apart. So, you know, I started having <laughs> delicate balance there. All these injuries and <laughs> yeah. things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you hit your peak and then it's a, it's a steep drop after that. But the two sides of the sport, men's and women's have, have started to somewhat meet in the middle but that's not the case, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, for sure. So what? how would you compare like your college experience to post-college? 
Can you kind of compare the differences or what was great about college compared to what was great about after? Like just some of the differences. Oh, uh, that's a tough one. I've never even thought about it. College was such a unique experience for me just because I really kind of figured out who I was and even more so what I wanted in my life. And I had to, for the first time, like anybody going to college, navigate school and work, like how much training I did. And like my training schedule was crazy. I mean, I was waking up at 5 a.m., hitting the gym at 6, training until 8, then going to class and coming back to the gym at 145, training until 5 or 6. And then I, you know, I was in the business school at Oklahoma. And those classes were at night from 7 to 9. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I had a, a really, really long day that sometimes felt like I'm not going to be able to get through this. But I learned so much about myself and just what I was capable of. I learned what it meant to be a, a teammate in college. Up until that point, I was, I'm always honest with people. I was in, I was such an individual, selfish, self-centered athlete that only wanted to win, win, win for myself. And then, you know, I got to college and I quickly learned what it meant to have teammates that were all kind of chasing after the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first year of college was a, a steep learning curve where I had to toss all of my own, not all of my own self desires to the side, but really learn how to compete for the guys standing next to me. And, you know, gymnastics is a naturally a individual sport. We're up there doing our routines on our own, but there's a huge team component in college and at the Olympics and um, I became such a better competitor whenever I started realizing that while I'm up there on that high bar or that set of rings or doing my floor routine, like this score counts for those other guys on my team. And I became a way better competitor. I was able to cut some of my like stress and anxiety that I had on myself actually went away. Interesting. Because I knew that those guys had my back and I was fighting for them. Like I wanted it for those guys more than I wanted it for myself. See, that's interesting because I thought, well, maybe would this be added pressure? But it sounds like that was more of like support behind you. Yeah, I just I felt like we were in it together. Even though I was up there on my own, I wasn't up there on my own, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. It wasn't long after college that I kind of became known for my my competitive abilities in the team competition. And I started kind of messing up when I was competing individually, like I just, oh, I, didn't, no. I didn't have the same fire whenever I was competing, like in an all around competition. I always had my best days when it was a team final, like at the Olympics in 2008, my best day of competition in my entire career was the 2008 team final. Like I nailed every routine, stuck every single one of my dismounts, put up the highest scores in my life. And then the all around final, a couple of days later, I was like, eh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I, I ended up like eighth. And uh, had I competed in the all-around final the same as I did in the team final, I would have gotten a silver medal in the all-around at the Olympics. Wow. Well, see, and that's interesting because you made that 2008 team right after your last collegiate season, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, so still in my brain, like team was everything. All I wanted to do was lead my team to something special. You know, at that point, I had stood on a, on a podium with my Oklahoma teammates three times and I had also stood up on that podium as an NCAA Division I all-around champion. And comparing the two moments, there was no comparison. Being up there with my team was so much greater. Wow. So just being able to look you know, to my left and to my right and seeing the smiles on everyone's faces, knowing that we were all champions together versus me being up there as an individual, like there was, it was just a totally different thing. And so at the Olympics, my number one goal was to win a medal with my team. I was so fortunate that I won a, a medal with a team and as an individual, but there was nothing, nothing like being up there with my five other teammates with an Olympic medal being placed over all of our necks instead of just mine by myself. That is really cool. I love the way you're describing that. And it, so tell us a little bit more about going into Beijing, like you make this Olympic team and, you know, there was some skepticism of, and doubt about the men's team at that time because of injuries, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> The 08 Olympic team was like a hodgepodge of athletes. So <laughs> it's, uh, well, I'll, I'll back you up to 2006. So 2006 was my first world championships. And in 06, basically because of me, we finished in the worst, well, it was the worst finish in U.S. history. Oh, you can't throw that all on your shoulders. Oh, no, 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 I can. I can, 100%. <laughs> so in 06, 
I was kind of the rising star of the U.S. team. We were competing in Denmark, and we were supposed to have a shot at you know maybe pushing for a medal. It was a re, it was definitely a rebuilding time because most of the O four team that got silver at the Olympics had retired. But even with our our rebuild, we were still a pretty darn good team. But we proceed to get to the Olympics, and then I fell six times in the preliminary round. And we oh my goodness, we didn't even qualify to day two to have a shot at a medal, and we finished in thirteenth. Was I the only one that made mistakes? No, but I was the only one that fell six times. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I, I hold the record for the most falls of any U.S. athlete at a world championship. So Oh, that's not a title you want, Jonathan. <laughs> but you know what? I am so thankful for that title because it's one of the reasons that I think I had the success I had two years later in 08. Like I, I legit wanted to quit after 06. I thought like no one's ever going to trust me again. My teammates are mad at me. My coaches are mad at me. Like Twitter was a brand new phenomenon and you don't even want to know what people were writing about me on Twitter. Uh. Like it was, it was bad. And I just felt like I had let everyone down. I let my country down. I knew that I was on the verge of making the Olympic team. Cause if, if you can make the world team, like that's essentially the Olympics in an off Olympic year for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So because of that 06 moment, like I turned into just like this obsessive machine of, like mindset, like this is never going to happen again. Like I'm about to turn this around to something that no one's ever seen before. And it's essentially what I did because in, in 2008, we almost had the same team, but we weren't supposed to have the same team. Like the, the Paul Hom and Morgan Hom, they came out of retirement to help us. Like those two guys like lit it up in 2004. Paul won the Olympic gold medal. Yeah. Paul and Morgan both won silver with the team. And so they're like, they, they went out on a high horse and retired. And because we were doing so bad, they came back. <laughs> oh gosh. Trying to save the day. <laughs> Trying to save Team USA. Like I, I don't blame them because they were the best US gymnasts we'd ever had. So anyways, they both come out of retirement. Even Blaine Wilson, who was like 34 years old and had been on three Olympic teams, he came out of retirement to try to help us. <laughs> but anyways, all three of those guys kind of fell through in the last moment. So Paul and Morgan both made the 08 Olympic team, but then got hurt. So Paul actually won U.S. Nationals in 08, but then broke his hand on a parallel bar routine. Oh, my goodness. Tried to keep going. And then right before we left for Beijing, said, guys, I'm not going to make it back in time. I'm out. Morgan, luckily, was still on the team. And the day before qualifications or prelims, whatever you want to call it, were in Beijing he lands a double layout on floor short and destroys his ankle. Oh, you could see as soon as he landed short, he stood up with tears in his eyes. We were watching him uh, and he knew there's no way he's competing. And I mean, we were rocked by that. We were all crying. We were all so upset because we, you know, we were a team that had struggled, but with Morgan and Paul, we knew we had a shot at getting back on the metal podium without them. Pretty much no one believed. I'm not even sure if we believed we had a shot. So anyways, Raj Bavsar and Alexander Artemev are alternates that come onto the team. And uh, Raj at least had a, a while to prep his brain to be on the team because Paul pulled out of the team like a few weeks ahead of time. Alex Artemev, who aka we called him Sasha, Sasha didn't find out he was competing until the day before he was competing. Oh, my goodness. At the Olympics. Was he there? Like, had he been training just in case? Yeah. Well, he was He was there, but he wasn't allowed on the Olympic complex. Oh. So he hadn't touched any of the Olympic apparatus. He hadn't been in the Olympic arena. Oh, my goodness. So he was a an all-arounder, but he was also known for his abilities on pommel horse. So he's a specialist on pommel horse. So his very first time touching any of the Olympic equipment was in qualification round. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. So insane. So it'd be like, I I don't know if this affects you, but it's like, all right, Laura, um, by the way, you're going to compete at the Olympics. Um, I know you haven't stood up on this 10 meter platform yet in this actual building, but we need you to walk up there right now and do your dives. Yeah. that (laughs) There's just, there's no time to adjust and clear your head and figure out like what the atmosphere is going to feel like. Anyways. So we go and compete in qualifications and the top eight teams would make it into the the medal round and we finished in seventh. And so that right there in itself was like, whoa, we did it. We get to go compete again. Like we were so <laughs> stoked because no one thought without Paul and Morgan that we were going to be able to do it. So then, you know, a couple of days later for team finals, 
I like I really don't know what happened. Like we we got out there. Well, tell me where y'all's mindset was. Like, did you were you guys just excited to be in the finals or were you guys like maybe we could do this or where where was everybody's brains? So I'll, I'll, I'll back you up again to the night before team finals. So the night before team finals was probably one of the coolest moments of my life as a teammate. We were in the Olympic Village and we had a we had a balcony in our like we had like little apartments. And um, so, I mean, you remember you were there in 08. You, you remember like the little apartments mm-hmm. that, that we had? That, that was such a beautiful Olympic Village. Oh, yeah. That was a nice village. Yeah, it was beautiful. So nice. So anyways, um, we were sitting up there and all of a sudden we all just kind of like convened out there on the balcony and we're sitting out there and Justin Spring, he's sitting there and he's like, guys, he gets like real serious. He's like, I can't do this. And we're like, what do you mean you can't do this? He's like, I'm supposed to fill in for Morgan on floor tomorrow. I haven't done a floor routine in like six months because oh he was he was having some like ankle and knee issues. And so anyways, he's like, I don't think I have the, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm blanking here. He's like, I don't think I have like the, the endurance to get through this floor routine. Oh, my routine is really, really hard. Like I haven't done it in so long. And we're like, Justin, we need you to get through this for us, buddy. Like you got this. So he's like full blown, like anxiety, panic attack. And then all of a sudden Raj jumps in. He's like, guys, I'm supposed to do pommel horse tomorrow at the Olympics. I don't think I could do this. And like pommel horse is terrifying, much less doing it at the Olympics and what we call a three up three count format where three guys go up, all three scores count, no room for error. That's so intense. Yeah. Yeah. So And again, Morgan was supposed to do that routine, not Raj. So (laughs) Raj is like in panic mode. And then the next thing I know, every one of us, one by one, are like throwing our, like we're just opening up and just putting our hearts out there. Like we're scared. We don't feel like we can do this. I'm terrified. I'm going to let the team down. I'm going to let the country down. Like none of us are feeling confident. And in that moment of vulnerability, all of a sudden we realized we were together, that every one of us was feeling the same. And we were all you know, experiencing this anxiety. And with that came this like bond that was like, I'm, I got goosebumps thinking about it. Like we suddenly just became a, a brotherhood. We were more than just an Olympic team. We were a family of guys that were like, hey, screw it. I know that no one believes that we can win a medal. We barely believe that we can win a medal because we're all panicking right now. But let's just go out there and like, we always said like grip it and rip it, like just like <laughs> grab the equipment and just go. Let's just like see what happens. Let's put our hearts out there and have have a blast competing with USA across our chest as the U.S. men's Olympic gymnastics team. Who cares what happens? And um, the very next day, we walked out there onto that competitive floor, and I could tell every one of us were our heads were clear. We felt good, and we just. We did what we said we were going to do. And uh, it was wild. I'll never forget. You know, we started on rings. And and by the time we got to high bar, which was our fourth event, we were winning. We were in the lead. We were beating China. And the crowd. So did you guys know that? Well, yeah. I mean, we could see the the results up on the scoreboard okay. in real time as it was being tallied. And uh, me, Joey Haggerty, and Justin did high bar. And after... I, I stuck my high bar routine, probably the best I've ever done it. And then Justin did a triple back off high bar and stuck it. And the crowd went crazy. I mean, we we got like people, like the crowd was like probably 75% Chinese fans, right? We were in China. Even they were chanting USA. <laughs> it, like we looked around and we couldn't believe it. We were just on fire. And, uh, you know, our last two events were floor and pommel horse. And which is going to lead me to my other story about Sasha again. But, you know, we went to floor, we had an okay floor and we dropped back into seventh place or not seventh, but second place um, after floor. So we knew that we weren't going to beat China. They were just too much of a powerhouse, but we knew we had a shot at beating Germany for that third spot, maybe even Japan for the second spot. So anyways, our pommel horse rotation, last event, three up, three count, absolutely terrifying. We're sitting in second place. And Kevin Tan, our leadoff guy, goes up, does a horse routine, and it's a little rough. He doesn't fall. He fights through it. And right after his routine, we automatically, we, we drop back into third. Raj goes up there, does his routine, and it's okay again. You could, I could tell he was in absolute panic mode, but he got through it. 
And uh, after his routine, we're still in third with one guy left. And that's Sasha. Oh, gosh. And like I said, Sasha was known for his ability on pommel horse. But he was he did all around. But we only used him on pommel horse that day. And keep in mind, he had only touched that pommel horse in prelims. He didn't get to train on that pommel horse. So here he is three hours later in the competition, completely cold because we warm up before the, the meet starts and then you don't get to warm up again. So I know, I'm like nervous right now. I even know this story and I'm like nervous listening to you right now. <laughs> yeah. So he's been sitting in the arena watching us compete, sitting in third place. He has to go up and nail his palm horse routine. If he doesn't, we fall into fourth and we get beat by Germany. He does one of the hardest palm horse routines in the world because he won the bronze medal at the world championships on palm horse a couple of years before. So, hey, Sasha, you're one of the best here. If you hit, we win a medal against all odds. If you don't, we fall. Good luck. Like, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and we know you're we know you're cold and you're nervous because you haven't done anything in the last two, two and a half, three hours. Was that your pep talk to him right before? Yeah. So, hey, have fun, buddy. <laughs> he goes up there and rocks, like just rips it and does like a ridiculous routine. I've watched it a bazillion times because as he's doing it, you can hear the crowd get louder and louder and louder. And you can hear us off to the side yelling louder and louder as he's going through this insane, like he does flares all over the pommel horse. Like you've never seen before the most beautiful gymnastics in the world. And he's just doing it flawlessly. Like he, it's like if he was in his own gym in his own little zone, had no idea that there were 40,000 people and a billion around the world watching him. And when he lands, we went insane because we knew we had just won a bronze medal at the Olympic Games and no one thought we would have a shot. It's like it was like the most insane thing ever. So epic. It was epic. Yeah. Oh, man. So clutch that that is so cool. And then you went on so that that was first and then you got your silver on high bar, right? Yeah. So that was a few days later. Um, That was just kind of. Uh, icing on the cake, getting to compete in, in high bar finals. Long story short with that one, I'd really been struggling on high bar for the past you know, year or so, which was one of my best events. I even had to water the routine down, took some big skills out. And so uh, I didn't think that I was going to qualify in as top eight to make the high bar final. Uh, and when I did, I kind of got a wild idea. I was like, you know what? I'm going to throw my skills I've been struggling on back in the routine. And then I'm going to throw a few more in there that I haven't competed in years. And I'm probably gonna, just going to chuck the hardest dismount in the world, a triple twisting double and see if I can win gold on this thing. <laughs> and all my teammates, all my teammates <laughs> and coaches, they were like, dude, you're a lunatic. Well, so what was that? What, what were you kind of thinking? Like, well, I don't really have a shot unless I try it, unless I just put it all on the yeah. line. So I may as well just put it on the line. Like, yeah. So like, well, this was the first year in men's gymnastics where they had what's called an open code where you could score higher than a 10 now. Right. So you could score a, a 15, a 16, a 17 and everything in between. Well, it's kind of like diving, right? Where you have degree of difficulty now, right? Yeah. 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 So we had these huge degrees of difficulty. And, uh, you know, in the past, everybody kind of maxed out their routines at a 10 and the judges would tally their score. And it was a pretty even playing field. This was the first time ever that it's like you could get up there and do a way harder routine in your competition and have a higher start value. And even if it, you didn't execute it quite as well, you could still beat them. So anyways, I, you know, my coach hadn't really thought about that. I had. And so he, I'll never forget. He, he was like, hey, John, I know you want to throw all these skills back in here and try this crazy routine, but like, this isn't a thing. Like people don't change the routine at the Olympics. It's like, Hey, Laura, I know that you do, uh, I'm, I'm throwing out a random dive here. I know you do an inward three and a half, but. Wow. Good lingo, John. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just winging it here. That was right. Yeah. Nice. But I know you want to try an inward four and a half, which no one's ever done before. And you think that you can do it, but you've never tried it. What makes you think that you're going to actually land? Like (laughs) you're going to hit this dive. And it'd be like you looking at your coach and being like, well, I mean, I I think I got it. (laughs) <laughs> You're killing me. I, I, like, I think I got this. Like, I, I'm, I'm probably not going to win unless I try this inward four and a half. And I may splat really hard and it's going to be embarrassing on worldwide TV at the Olympics, but it's going to be really epic whether I splat or not. <laughs> <laughs> this was my mindset going into this because I was about to try a radical routine that I'd never done before. So anyways, my coach was like, no, don't do it. Like, absolutely not. And I was like, yes, it's happening. 
So luckily I had a few days between the team final and the, all, the high bar final to, to try it. And so I, I probably tried this insane routine like 20 times in the training facilities. I was all over the place. It was a disaster. Like I, I was trying this crazy release move that I had done in training before, but I'd never done in a routine. I was trying to like putting this whole routine together. Like I just didn't have the endurance to do it. Like there was actually one time in the training gym I got through the whole routine and I was so tired from my dismount that I flew off the bar and landed on my back. <laughs> so oh my like, I just, I, my arms are so tired. I couldn't hold onto the bar anymore. So anyways, my coach, after all these attempts was like, so you're not going to try it. Right. And I was like, no, I'm still going to try it. So <laughs> he, he was just like, why? I was like, coach. I was like, man, I qualified into this final in seventh out of eight places. I was like, if I go do my normal routine, I'm guaranteed seventh or eighth. Like, I want to know that I, I gave it everything I had, but in his mind, he, you know, I, I don't blame him. He was like, well, why don't you just go and perform and have fun and do it the best you've ever done it. And, and just enjoy that you're in the Olympic, you know, high bar final. And it just, it didn't really work for me. So yeah, I want more. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, you know, the day of the, the high bar final, I think I was up like fifth or sixth in the, in the lineup. And, uh, I knew that the, some really, really good routines had been done before me. And so that kind of solidified my brain, like even more, like I got to do this. Like, I'm not going to beat these guys. I'm not going to win a medal. And I want to win a medal. If not, like I want to win gold. Yeah. I remember I, I stood up underneath the high bar and my coach probably doesn't like that. I always tell people this, but like I was standing there and waiting on the judges to signal to me that it was my turn to go. And I just remember feeling the energy in that arena, uh, you know, 40,000 packed and, um, yeah, it's just like I was so much adrenaline, you know, also followed by I want to leave the arena. I want to quit. <laughs> like we talked about earlier, but my coach, he always kind of assisted me up to the bar. And he was like, before I even went, like before the judges signaled to me, he was like, John, you're not going to do this, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, hey, don't do this. And I didn't respond. The judges looked at me. They signaled they were ready. I raised my hand. I just went. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> I like, I, I can still feel it. Like it was yesterday, I got up on that bar and I've never felt the energy and the adrenaline that I had that day. I started swinging around the bar, probably, you know, hundred miles an hour, like way faster than I ever go. And I flew off the bar for my first release move. And when I caught it, which was the, it was the big one that I had never performed in a routine before I caught the bar. And I just remember thinking like, Whoa, I'm still on the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so then I like, I wound up for another one and another one. I had four release elements. I caught all four of them. Oh my goodness. And when I caught the fourth one, I remember hearing like a, a lot of athletes, they say they tune out the crowd or distractions, I kind of thrive on it. <laughs> and I heard everything. Like I heard people going crazy. You needed that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I just, I was feeding off of that energy. And when I caught that fourth release element, I was thinking to myself, like, holy cow, like in the training, like all these things are going through my mind. I was remembering like in the training facility, usually at this point, like I'm exhausted, but this time I'm not tired at all. So I did a couple more like intricate skills before my dismount. I remember winding up for my dismount and I was like, dude, I got this. <laughs> and uh, I flew off the bar. I was the only gymnast in, in the whole world at that point. I, I still, I don't think anybody does it still today, but I did a triple twisting double layout and I nearly stuck the landing. And at the end of the day, I scored a 16.175 and won the silver medal. Huge. Athlete from China scored a 16.2. And the difference between gold and silver was the fact that I, I kind of lost my balance a little bit when I landed on the ground, had to take a step forward instead of sticking the landing. Had I done that, I would have won gold. Mm, man, it was such an epic, uh, and you, you're just such a good storyteller, but like such an <laughs> epic Olympics between the team event, your individual high bar. Like I just, I absolutely love it. What made you like, because you continued on through the 2012 games. And like, did you ever think about ending on the high note? Or was it always, no, I got more in me. I want to do more. Well, my, my goal was always, always to be like Laura Wilkinson or, <laughs> and win gold. I wanted that gold medal. And, uh, you know, so that's what kind of kept driving me. I, I never got to really call myself an Olympic champion. But I also tell my, I tell people I didn't lose gold. I, I won silver. I won bronze. I, I didn't lose anything. I'm so fortunate to have been able to do the things that I did. And so that's what drove me to 2012 and then 2016. 2012, we had a pretty rough showing. Um, I finished fifth on high bar in 2012. Not quite as crisp of a routine. And then uh, 
we had a pretty young group of guys. We actually won qualifications by like a landslide. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in 2012, we were, take this for however you want if you're listening, but we were the best team in the world in 2012, but we didn't perform as the best team in the world in 2012. So we had a lights out day in prelims. And then in the team finals, we kind of fell apart and finished fifth. But um, that was our time to, to win gold. We could have done it had we just had a normal day. And then um, high bar finals, like I said, you know, finished in fifth. And then in 2016, well, first off, in, in 2012, I was having a lot of like major shoulder pain. Got through the games. I remember every single ring routine that I did, whenever I landed my dismount, I felt like I was going to puke because my shoulders were hurting so bad. Oh, man. So I ended up getting an MRI in December of 2012. And uh, MRI showed that pretty much everything in my shoulder was destroyed. And so I had a six and a half hour reconstructive surgery on my my right shoulder. Ooh. Yeah. So I don't know how I competed on it. And neither does my surgeon. He was like, man, I went in there and he was like, your bicep was partially torn. Three different muscles of the rotator cuff were 90% ripped through. Your labrum was completely torn. And the acromion bone in my shoulder had warped and had a hook on the end that he had to shave off. And so it was like, there was nothing in your shoulder that was normal. It took a whole year for me to recover from that surgery. And then um, after I recovered from that, I ended up hitting the P-bars wrong in a training session at the Olympic Training Center and ruptured my pec, had to have another shoulder surgery. Oh, jeez. Then I came back from that. That took about six months. And then um, I actually came back and I got into the best shape of my entire life. I was fully back. I was getting stronger. In nine months before the games in 2016, I was training pommel horse one morning. I didn't even make a mistake. My body just said no. My, I felt a pop in my left shoulder and like a, like a zipper sensation. It felt like my shoulder just opened up inside and I fully ruptured my rotator cuff that day. And that was pretty much the end of my gymnastics career. I never made it to the 2016 games. Mm. Well, I have to ask you, because, and I get, I get asked this sometimes because I, I won my first Olympic games, but then I competed at two more and, you know, came back the last year or whatever and didn't have these epic endings like I started. But people ask me if I regret, like, do you wish you had gone out on top? And, and I personally say no, because I won the world cup and world championship after that first win, I went on to do really hard things that no other woman still does today. You know, like, so I pushed myself in my own limits and, and I still had amazing experiences, but like, what, how do you feel about that? Like, have you, do you ever get asked about that? Like, do you wish you had just retired after Beijing? Do you regret continuing on? Like, what are your thoughts around that? No, I, uh, it's a pretty easy answer for me. I, I needed to completely empty the gas tank of everything I had to offer the sport. I loved gymnastics so much. I loved every single moment of training. I hated and loved competition. I needed to know that there weren't any, I always talk about the the what ifs. I needed to know that there weren't any what ifs at the end of my career. Same. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to wonder like, what if I had gone a little longer? What if I had trained a little harder? What if I had tried this or that? I just, I needed that closure of knowing that I had nothing left. I had no more flips to give. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. And so I really did. Like I exhausted every single thing that I could for the sport. I only have one regret. And that one regret is that I, I never had a final moment of gymnastics. Yeah. And I may have talked to you about this before, but there was something that really like touched me a few years back and it was in your sport. Troy, what's Troy's last name? Dumais, yeah. Yeah, Troy Dumais. I was watching, I think it was either nationals or Olympic trials. It was trials, yeah. Yeah, it was trials. And for 2016, right? Yeah, he knew he wasn't going to make the team at that point. And he went up for his final dive and he got a standing ovation. He knew that it was his final dive. He was going to retire after this. He knew this was the last time that he would ever be up there to compete and got a standing O and he was in tears mm-hmm. up there. And he just soaked in the moment of his last experience as an elite diver for Team USA. You know, he wiped the tears away, collected himself and did a beautiful final dive. And that's a moment that I wish I could have gotten in my career. That was, a, I wish that I, one more time, when my body was still healthy enough to do it, been able to stand underneath that high bar or that set of rings or whatever, event, anything but pommel horse (laughs) (laughs) and gotten my final routine where everyone in the arena, including myself, my coaches, everyone in the sport knew this is 
this is my final moment. And uh, whether I nail the routine or not, like my ability, my, my way of just saying thank you to everybody yeah. for the career. So I never got it. I wish that I had trained a little longer, maybe made another nationals and, and just to, for that. But, you know, it would have seemed silly just to come back for that. Yeah. No, I get it. Just that closure feeling. I get that. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, you you also went on after your gymnastics career to become an eight-time American Ninja Warrior competitor and the shortest man ever to make it to the top of the warped wall. So That's right. I have to ask, is the mentality for that kind of competition a lot like gymnastics or completely different? Like, do you get sick to your stomach before you go, but then you're like, I'm going anyway, or is it totally different? Yeah. It's the same stinking thing. I want to walk off the, <laughs> the course right before it's my turn. Like, I don't want to do it. Uh, my only thought is I can't wait till I get to the top of that warp ball and hit the buzzer because I know how good it's going to feel. <laughs> now, it, it very similar, actually. The one thing, you know, Ninja Warrior was great. Eight seasons was a blast. I got to meet so many cool people. I got to I got to continue to compete in something really fun that, you know, gymnastics was a really good foundation for. I never really had a season that was successful like I expected out of myself. And a lot of it was because I couldn't ever get out of the idea that I needed to know what things were going to feel like to do it. So in gymnastics, it's like the same for you. You know exactly what that dive is going to feel like. You know your timing, you know everything about it. And then you go and you just do it. Ninja Warrior, they don't let us touch the obstacles. They don't let us do anything before your run. Oh, interesting. You just have to look at it and go. And so for me and my you know, repetitious mindset of, I need to know. I was never able to really just attack the course and be aggressive like some of the other kids. You know, you get these young kids in there and they just go without even thinking. I think I tend to hesitate a lot on a ninja course and you can't. As soon as you hesitate, you fall. And so it was really something that kind of always bit me. I had a few good seasons, but it was a blast, but I, I never, I never was able to, like, I, I really believe I could have been like a, a Ninja Warrior champion had I just been able to get my old gymnastics mindset out of my brain. Mm-hmm. No, I, I hear that. I would, I would imagine it'd be a hard transition that way. Like, cause you're, it's a totally different sport, but yet some similarities, but you have to adapt in different ways for sure. Yeah. It's like, I think I had the physical ability, but I didn't have yeah. the mental ability for Ninja Warrior. <laughs> That's so funny. So it is what it is though. I had a lot of fun. I'm, I'm retired from it now and, you know, happy to just stay in shape in my own way. And I'm not competing anymore. Y'all, his his arms are still bigger than my head. So don't think he's not in shape. Don't <laughs> let him fool you. I just saw him six weeks ago. So I know. Um, okay, you have published two books also. Um, one is If I Had Known, Life Lessons from an Olympic Pro Athlete. And the other one is Falling Forward, How an Ordinary Kid Failed His Way to His Olympic Dream. Tell us a little bit about those and where we can find them. Yeah. So first off, you can find them on Amazon. So you know, you just type in the title on Amazon. They should come up easy to order. And I appreciate... I just typed in his name too. So you can also just look up Jonathan Horton and they'll both pop up. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate your support if you, you go and grab a book. But if I had known was kind of funny. So I, uh, I actually hated writing growing up. <laughs> like, <laughs> I never in a million years thought that I would write a book. And when I retired, I, I was actually talking to a, a journalist with Sports Illustrated. And uh, he goes, hey, I got one final question for you in our interview. He goes, if you had to go back to your younger self and tell them what you know now, you know, what would you tell them? And I was thinking, well, hmm, what would I tell myself? Like, if I had known this, what other things would I have done or how would it have made my life easier? And so kind of came up with the idea of if I had known and what I would tell younger athletes, what I would tell my younger self. That's cool. And so it's really just a super easy, somewhat like probably junior high, high school level read for younger kids that are just looking for some guidance on, you know, it's a lot of gymnastic stories that are applicable to any sport. Mm -hmm. There's not really much of a flow from story to story, but it's just individual random stories that I felt needed to be told. Like one of the chapters is like three pages long and it's about like just eating right. So Important advice. Yeah. Don't be dumb and eat and sleep. Like do what you need to do for your body because makes a huge impact on your career. If you you want to be a professional football player, or baseball player, I don't care what it is. You want to be an Olympian. Don't be dumb like me and eat junk until you're in college. Like it wasn't until I was in college that I started focusing on my diet. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder like, man, if I had known what I knew then, like how much more of a foundation, how much stronger, how much more powerful could I have made myself when I was younger? 
and help myself into my older age had I just eaten right and slept right. And so that's kind of what the whole chapter is about. So it's little things like that. And then um, my other book is uh, uh, Falling Forward, which is just simply my whole autobiography. Once I wrote the first one, I, I kind of realized like I can do this. You know, I just, I felt like I, I wanted to just share with people my entire start to finish as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that I wasn't the most gifted and talented kid, that I wasn't the strongest, the fastest, I was a notoriously slow learner. I didn't win hardly anything until I was much older. And then even when I did get older and thought I was one of the best, I still led Team USA to the worst performance in history. So it's like, <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted people to fully know that, Hey, just because I was an Olympian with medals and just because I had won a lot of things, I lost a lot of things along the way. Like I was a train wreck, probably the majority of my career. The victories I have is just probably the 1% of my, my gymnastics. I went through those trenches. I embraced the suck, like you said, and like the Marines <laughs> say, for the 1% victories. Yeah, worth it. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, this, this has been awesome. Where can people follow you online to continue to be inspired by you? Yeah, people can reach out to me on social media if they want. I, I really, I'm just on Facebook. Uh, I've got a Facebook page and uh, an Instagram page. So shoot me a, a message on there or follow me and and uh, try to get back to people every now and then. I'm not super active these days on social media, but I try to be from time to time. So that's the best way. Awesome. Well, we'll link to those in the show notes so people can find it easy. But Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on and telling your incredible stories and inspiring us and motivating us to keep falling forward. For sure. Well, I appreciate it, Laura. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.